0: You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Dennis Crawford is an entomologist that's written a couple of important Aussie insect-related books called Backyard Insects as well as Garden Pests, Diseases and Good Bugs. He's also written for a number of other publications, including the Hort Journal, and in this episode we're lucky enough to have him on the show to describe some of the main insect pests we're likely to run into, whether that's in our backyard or something with a bit more at stake, such as a large broadacre farm. G'day mate, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So Dennis, can you start by telling us a little bit
1: about your history with plant pests? Oh, certainly. Certainly. I started back in the 1970s with the Victorian Department of Agriculture and you know I had basic scientific qualifications but it was it was there that I really cut my teeth on insects as it were so I was working in agricultural entomology particularly to do with field crop pests which means insects that attack things like wheat crops and so forth. so broad acre crops, basically. So that's where I started. and I, um, I learned an awful lot, I guess, on the job, and I worked for them for about 10 years or so. And towards the end of it, I thought I'd like to do insects in a different way. And I had a great interest in photography and wanted to do stuff with insect photography. went back to university to get a degree in scientific photography. And did that kind of work for a while, you know, doing work for CSIRO and so forth, and also working with a a friend of mine, writing a book, which is called Backyard Insects, which came out in the mid-90s, and that's now in its third edition, believe it or not. And also around about that time, I started to do some some work with an integrated pest management consultancy. Which was mostly in horticultural crops this time. So uh, things like vineyards and rose glasshouses and so forth. Um, And that sort of allowed me to work with different crops, with different insects, and to see how they worked. And the whole idea behind integrated pest management is to help growers to protect their plants against insects and do a whole lot of work as preventatives rather than waiting for a problem to happen and then mm-hmm. you know try to use a, a pesticide or so forth. So there was a lot of work around you know how you can uh, cultural controls, which are things you know, could be as simple as pulling weeds out, which may be harboring the pests, and then things like encouraging beneficial insects. And in some cases, particularly in glasshouses, we were able to Release beneficial insects into the into the glasshouse to help combat against um, certain pests. And I also around around then started to do a whole lot of writing, you know, writing for various magazines, including gardening magazines and trade magazines, all about insects. And yeah, and eventually, which culminated in me writing my uh, latest book, which came out five or so years ago call garden pests, diseases, and good bugs.
0: So that brings us to the next question that I have really nicely, Dennis. What is the difference between
1: a pest and a non-pest insect? Sure. Well, uh, in a in a nutshell, a a pest insect is really just something that we call a pest. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's sort of a, a human label, you know, a label that humans mm-hmm. give to insects, in other words. And so out there in nature, all the insects are doing whatever comes naturally to them. And there are millions of species, and about half of them feed on a plant in some way or other, you know, whether they chew the leaves or or bore into the plant or, you know, dig underground and feed on the roots or whatever it is, about fifty percent of all insects feed on plants in some way. Is that living plants? Oh, yeah, uh, and some dead plants, you know, things like okay. auras and so forth. So if you think about that, so, gosh, you know, so half the insects feed on the plant, so every plant probably has an insect that feed, feeds on it. Yep, that's that's correct. Mm. Yeah. So how right. come? how come there are still plants, you know? Why haven't the insects <laughs> eaten everything, you know? And that's because, well, they'd be eating basically eating themselves to death because there'd be nothing you know for the next generation to feed on so there's this thing i you know i guess you can call it a balance for one of a bit of a better word in that sort of things can go in boom and bust cycles where even out there in natural systems like in a in a national park or whatever you could have one year where Say so for example, the gum trees had a whole lot of caterpillars on them. In the next year, they might not have so many caterpillars or or that caterpillar not at all. And that's sort of fairly normal. So you'll get a thing where the insects will build up in numbers and then they'll sort of collapse because they've got it slightly wrong and maybe eaten a bit too much. I've seen this where you can see caterpillars coming out of gum trees where, The gum trees have got no leaves left on it. All these caterpillars coming down the trunk and then the ground underneath the tree is swarming with caterpillars about six inches deep and it's staggering when you see that. But that happens from time to time and usually that's a situation where you've had a real sort of boom and bust where you've had a massive spike and then a massive drop off. And usually the spikes aren't quite so high as that. But generally speaking, out there in nature, on most plants, there'll be some insect doing something. And so when it, we translate that into a crop or you know, your favourite plant in a backyard, so let's, you know, let's say it's a rose bush, when we see an insect feeding on it, we don't like it particularly, because we like that plant to be, you know, pristine. And if you're a commercial grower, you want your crop, whatever it is, you know, lettuces or something to be undamaged, because that's going to uh, render the crop or some of the crop unsellable. So that's why Mm. things are called pests. And if we go back to my thing about, you know, 50% of insects feed on plants, only about Oh gosh it's I think it's less than half of half of one percent of insects pests, so you're measuring oh. the number of pests in the hundreds as opposed to mm-hmm. the number of total species in the millions, and mm-hmm. so it's just something that we call a pest, and then the other one so if a minority of insects are what we call pests some another minority are insects that we call beneficial insects or or good bugs, and for example, you know, you think of a, a ladybird or a praying mantis or maybe a little parasitic wasp, they're beneficials. They're also a minority. The vast majority of insects that may visit a garden or a crop are benign. They're not pests and they're not beneficial either. They're just doing their thing, whatever they happen to be doing, they might be just feeding on a flower, they might chew on a leaf and then move off, or they might lay eggs and a few larvae of some sort hatch out and they don't particularly cause much damage and then they move on. And so mm. some some are pests, some are beneficial, but the majority are just there doing their insect thing.
0: Mm. Absolutely. It reminds me of plants as well. You know, we have pest plants that we like to call weeds. But again, that's, that's right. just a man-made definition.
1: Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. A, a good definition for a weed is a plant that we don't want somewhere. Yeah, wherever that, <laughs> where, wherever where is, you know, usually our backyard. Yeah. You know, the or the veggie garden or something like that. It's what you know, a, a plant that we we determine that is out of place um, for some reason.
0: Absolutely, and I would like to point our listeners towards two episodes that I think are relevant in the conversation so far, which is episode 50, Understanding Weeds with Ben Sims, and also episode 33, which is Intro to Integrated Pest Management with Dr. Peter Ridland. So after you finish this episode, make sure you go and listen to those if you're not quite uh, understanding what we're talking about when Dennis was talking about IPM a little bit earlier. Dennis, when we're talking about insects in this episode, I think that we're going to be a little bit loose with that term because there are other insect-like pests such as mites that we're going to include in this sort of insect-like pest definition.
1: Sure, that's a, a really good idea because you know mites can be uh, uh, very serious pests. And so they are insect-like in, in, in a sense, but they are uh, being eight legged creatures they are more uh, closely related to spiders and scorpions and so forth. And what makes mites difficult in a home garden setting is their size. They are, they are very, very small. Some of them you can see if you if you look at a plant carefully, you may see them moving on on the leaf or things like spider mites create uh, produce a webbing, which is, you'll see on a plant. But there are others um, which are absolutely tiny. You know, they're about 0.1 of a millimetre in size. So you would need a a very powerful, uh, like a hand lens, like a a magnifying glass or a microscope to actually see them. So unfortunately, with mites that are that small, you tend to see the damage first Mm. and then you go hunting for what it is. And hopefully you've got some sort of way of magnifying the leaf, uh, to be able to actually see the mite.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So we're looking at a plant sign here, a sign of the damage of, of an insect-like pest. I just want to briefly touch on the difference between a sign and a symptom. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, sure. I mean, they're one and the same thing, really. Um, so you're looking for, you know, the, a sign or a symptom of insect damage is, you know, what how it feeds and what that causes the plant to look like. So, for example, uh, with, a, with a chewing insect, and quite often we're talking about the larval form of the insect. So it could be a caterpillar or it could be, a say, a beetle grub. They have jaws and they tend to create fairly obvious damage symptoms where they, you know, basically chew chunks out of a leaf, either in the middle or on the edge. And so that sort of damage is is fairly obvious. But then you have the insects which have sucking mouthparts, which is basically a mouthpart like a straw, which they poke into the plant somewhere, you know, often on the leaf, and then they they're sucking the sap. So sometimes that kind of damage is difficult to see or difficult to determine, or sorry, to differentiate from other kinds of damage. But it tends to show up if the insect isn't on the leaf anymore, If say if it's moved on, you might have little yellow spots appearing on the leaf. And then the other sign to look for with a lot of sap sucking insects is that the the insect, you know, sucks up huge amounts of of sap which is has a fairly high sugar content now the insect doesn't need all that sugar and it passes it out out its rear end as a concentrated sugar solution called honeydew and and sometimes you know it's called honeydew because it kind of smells a little bit like honey because it is very concentrated sugar and so this is where you know once you know what you're looking for it can be really easy to see because say you've had one of those insects you know like a soft scale insect or something like that which has done that and dropped all this honeydew onto the leaf below it sort of creates this sticky substance on the top of the the leaf below and on that honeydew sooty mold grows which is <laughs> is black black sort of powdery stuff so when people first see that, they think, oh, I've got a, a fungal problem. Yes. Uh, no, yes. no, you don't. You have an insect problem. So it's a great sign. You can see, you know, once you get your eye trained to these things, you will see sooty mould more easily than you'll see the insect which, which caused it. And so what you've got to do then is go, okay, I've got sooty mould on this leaf. So what's on the leaf above that? Yeah, quite often on the underside, and you'll flip the leaf over and you go, aha, there's, you know, aphids or, or um, you know, scale insects or whitefly or something like that. Mm. Or a mite. Mites, t- yeah, tend not to do that. So they're, they're Is that a little right? do tri- they not trickier. Live the sooty yeah. Mite,
0: the sooty mold. Okay. That's right. So yeah, I've
1: got two pests
0: then, because in my new apartment, I have some mites that I've seen, and I also yep. have some sooty mold. So there must be an aphid or something from that family of bugs present as okay. well as the mites.
1: Right oh so let's do do a, a a Dr Dennis on that. So so what sort of plant is it?
0: It's a bay leaf tree.
1: Okay. And it's got sooty mold on the on the upper surface of some of the leaves?
0: Yes, on the upper surface and I'm I might have actually assumed you... it was red spider mites because I think I've seen one or two spider mites around, but maybe I haven't looked closely yep. enough Dennis.
1: Yeah, so if you look under the leaves, you've probably got I would say, being a bay leaf, probably a scale insect. So you'd be looking for a a small sort of dark brown to, to black kind of um, dot, maybe a couple of millimetres across, something like that on the underside of some of those leaves. Interesting. Well, thank you for that, because that's very interesting to me
0: to know that the spider mites aren't going to leave behind enough residue, enough honeydew for the black sooty mould to take effect.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah they, they, yeah, they don't produce honeydew like uh, those sap-sucking insects do. They, they, they must take on board much less volume of the liquid. So, yeah.
2: There
0: you go. So these are sucking insects that we've been talking about. I just wanted to touch on signs and symptoms there too. In TAFE, I was taught that a sign is evidence of an insect or a pest of some kind. So that might be, you know, holes in the leaf. And then you have a symptom, which is the effects that the plant has produced, maybe chlorosis or something like that.
1: Yeah, well, and that's that's true, but yeah, they're interchangeable, interchangeable terms. They are interchangeable. Um, yeah, cool. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I would tend to use I would just use symptom, you know, for for just everything. Just use symptom so for yeah, yeah, okay. for 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 insect damage and also fungal disease and and so forth. Cool. Good to know. So we've talked about sucking and chewing insects. A lot of yep. them are going to
0: be related in that sort of, I can't remember what the family name is, but you've got aphids, whiteflies, scale. Do you know the name of that insect family?
1: Yeah, that's Hemiptera, which is the, which is the, the true bug order. So there's a exactly. whole lot of them. They're all related, you know, whitefly, as you say, scales, aphids, Yeah, all those, all those sucking insects. It's a fairly large order of insects. Can't remember off the top of my head how many thousand species, but it's quite a lot. <laughs> so it's not a family; it's an
0: order. It's a larger order. Classification.
1: Yes, yes. A la- exactly, yeah, yeah. So aphids would be in a in a family, and then aphids plus whitefly would be in in that insect order. I see. Okay. Now, whiteflies don't look a whole
0: lot like the aphids that we think about because aphids don't have leaves. uh don't have wings. Can you tell uh, us about aphid do, wings? Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, aphids yes. do have wings
1: <laughs> at uh, at some stages of their life cycle. So, generally speaking, when aphid to, for aphids to arrive in a backyard or into a crop, they need to fly in. So that's usually early in spring. And then, once the aphids start breeding on a plant, those that progeny won't have wings. But if the aphid population builds up to such an extent that there's not enough plant left for everybody to plug in and suck sap the next generation will have wings and then they fly off mm. to a more suitable <laughs> yeah greener pastures basically mm. so yeah they do they do have wings sometimes so okay so that must be triggered by something within
0: the genes what do they feel hungry and then suddenly their children are going wings or something like that
1: yeah pr- pretty much yeah that, that's right. Yeah, and also, and then, and then, then again, at the end of the season, where they tend to fly off to places where they can overwinter, and you know, at that point, they may lay eggs, or sometimes they survive winter as as adults. But depending on the species and where you are in the country, you know, so there's often lots of variation in these life cycles and lifestyles. Mm. Speaking of life cycles, I
0: think it is important just to touch on that. I mean, different insects do have different life cycle kind of processes coming from an egg into an adult and then death.
2: Yeah.
1: So we were talking before about our aphids and so forth. So in that, um, you know, sap sucking bug order of insects, they, they tend to have a life cycle where sometimes an egg is laid and then out will hatch basically a miniature version of the adult but you know with, without wings and they molt and get bigger and molt and get bigger and then at their final molt stage they'll have wings and there's some variation there where a lot of aphids for example can give birth to live young so that's why with some aphid pests the population can build up incredibly quickly and even, even more intriguingly, some aphids don't need males. So they reproduce by parthenogenesis. And so each female adult gives birth to females and so forth. So you end up with this incredibly rapidly developing population of aphids. So so that's one type of, of life cycle. And those immature insects in that life cycle. They're usually called nymphs. So we compare that compare and contrast that with another life cycle that most people would be familiar with would be butterfly, where you have an adult butterfly or, or moth that lays an egg and from that hatches a larva, which we call a caterpillar. And so at that stage, that's the time that the insect grows. So when they first hatch out, they're tiny and they molt and get bigger and molt and get bigger until they pupate. And pupation in that sort of hard-shelled thing is often how those kind of insects survive winter because it's a kind of kind of armour-plated, if you like. But it's also where that great change happened happens which we call metamorphosis where you have something that used to look like a caterpillar turns into a six-legged flying insect mm-hmm. <laughs> via, via the um, the pupa so it is extraordinary what happens inside inside a pupa where sort of at cell level their kind of little cells are allocated you know, that's going to be a wing and that's going to be a leg and and so forth. So it is absolutely amazing what happens inside the pupa of an insect that has a life cycle like that. And they're the only creatures, the only animals that do this.
0: Yeah, absolutely crazy. And when we're talking about the different life cycles too, maybe, you know, a butterfly might look beautiful and you might think it's beautiful. But at the end of the day, if it's an introduced pest, uh, that life cycle of the butterfly isn't the only life cycle. It might have a terrifying grub, um, sort of a caterpillar phase.
1: Oh, absolutely. And the one that springs to my mind immediately is the uh, the cabbage white butterfly. Whereas yes. in other countries, they're kind of people, you know, photograph them and, you know, collect them because they're, they're mm. a native insect and it's a native butterfly and they put up with, you know a little bit of damage in their cabbages whereas here in australia they a major pest because when they first arrived here um you know which was quite some time ago there were there weren't the beneficial insects here that would help to combat it so during the i think it was the 1940s and 50s we imported a whole lot of beneficial insects from from Europe to help combat it so that's a, a variety of parasitic wasps which lay their eggs in the caterpillar and uh, and kill them that way so that sort of breaks that life cycle so you don't get another generation of egg laying butterflies emerging so yes some some butterflies are pests on some plants in some countries
0: Yes, that's right. It's all about the balance, isn't it? We've got these ecosystems that have evolved over vast periods of time, but I don't want to get bogged down on that too much because we have talked about that quite a lot on the podcast already. Sure. It's just so relevant when we're talking about insect pests. But you did mention the caterpillars there. They are a type of a chewing pest.
1: That's correct, yes. So particularly with butterflies and moths, it's only the larva that causes the damage. Because Mm. you know, butterflies and moths just have a you know a nectar feeding uh, proboscis, that curly, curly tongue like thing that they have under their heads. So they don't cause much damage at all. There are a couple of obscure moths which which damage uh, very ripe fruit because they're. This is in uh, like North Queensland because the they have the tip of their little proboscis. Is sort Mm. of tough enough to be able to get through the skin of soft, uh, soft soft-skinned ripe fruit, but they are in in an incredible minority, (laughs) incredibly low minority.
0: So that would be one of the cases of uh, evolutionary convergence there, where they're acting almost like a thrip or something like that.
1: Uh, Kind of, yeah. So it's a, it's just a way for, yeah. So the the evolutionary thing would have been it gives the adult more options, the adult butterfly, sorry, adult moth, more options in terms of what it feeds on. So mm. in the rainforest, you know, where they evolved, if there aren't enough flowers, you know, if I've got a hard-tipped proboscis, I can also feed on the fruits, you know, mm. if I can actually get in there. So, so that's how, how that would work. Mm. Totally. So we've, got, we've talked about so far sucking and chewing insects. We've talked about how we
0: can tell the difference between them just by looking at the signs on the leaf. So maybe there's um, a little bit of discoloration. You've got some yellow spots or maybe some sooty mold for a sucking insect. I've also noticed yep. that a lot of the time sucking insects can drain the color out of a leaf. So maybe it looks silvery or something like that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah, some do that.
0: And then we've got like our chewing insects, so they're going to leave a big hole in the leaf so maybe it's usually going to be a caterpillar but also weevils uh, is it a weevil is that the correct uh, insect I'm thinking of a weevil with the weird head
1: yeah weevils do have a, a weird head they have this uh, thing called a rostrum which is if you like a base you know a really long nose and they're chewing mouth parts right at the end of that um, proboscis mm. and they can they are a type of beetle so weevils are in the beetle order so they have mm-hmm. chewing mouth parts very similar to to most other beetles and the because of that sort of lengthy rostrum the damage can look slightly different they tend to do this sort of uh how can I describe it sort of they take sections out of a leaf almost with a with a, a square edge to it it's kind of quite different <laughs> to a, a scalloping damage which would be mm. more with a a caterpillar or a different type of beetle
0: that's very interesting
1: so is that because
0: they're using their mouth parts as a kind of a scissor whereas a a um, caterpillar might just eat chomp 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 you know around in a circle wherever its body yeah, can almost like yeah, a pr- um,
1: go on it's because the if you imagine mouth parts out on an arm you can sort of reach into corners if you like you can yeah. reach further and so whereas when a when a caterpillar feeds it can only kind of work sort of similar to us as we raise and lower our heads and it sort of mm. creates a curve if you if you follow that and so that's yeah. why Caterpillar damage tends to be a sort of a curved scallop, rather than this sort of notched slotting that that weevils can do. Okay, there we go. So those
0: are chewing insects. We've also got insect pests that can make galls. Now, anybody who has a citrus tree has probably
1: encountered gall wasps. Yes, absolutely. That's a certainly in in Melbourne. It's really taken off as a as a quite a major pest in people's backyards. But there's a a range of insects which cause galls um, in plants, and it's a, a phenomenal defense mechanism. So what happens is the, you know, whatever insect it is lays an egg into the into the plant tissue, you know, into a stem usually, something often when it's fairly soft and young stem. And then the plant kind of encapsulates that egg and sort of forms this. Hardened thing around it kind of to as to protect itself, but in so doing it creates this amazing like uh, kind of like a little castle <laughs> around the insect. so this this it's this hard hardened thing, and so it's very clever and that all happens at sort of the biochemistry level, and that is promoted by the insect, so the insect causes the plant to grow that thing around its egg. And so then as the, even more intriguingly, as the insect hatches and the larva starts feeding inside, all protected in this nice little cozy spot, as it gets bigger, the gall gets bigger. So it's sort of still a living part of the plant. And so it is really amazing. So a whole range of insects do it. Galls have a different appearance depending on what insect has caused it. And you were mentioning the the citrus gall wasp. So that's a, a tiny little wasp, you know, about oh, two millimeters long, I think it is. Oh, and it tiny. can cause... Yeah, it's minute. So most, most home gardeners have never seen one because they are so small. Mm. You will see the emergence holes in old galls where you'll see it peppered with tiny little holes. That's... The next generation of wasps leaving and going somewhere else to lay more eggs. but these wasps, these tiny little things can cause galls to form that are you know up to half a meter long. and I've seen this it, 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 they look grotesque when when a plant is so badly infested the, the plant just looks terrible. so they they can be a problem, but there's a range of other insects that do this, and they do it, you know, out there in nature, you know, with gum trees, for example. A whole lot of insects cause different-shaped galls to appear on the leaves of gum trees, and that's perfectly natural, happens all the time. The insects and the trees have kind of evolved together, and you rarely get an infestation on a gum tree of go- uh, any gall-inducing in- insect, which is a, of a problem for the tree, only if perhaps it's a, a a sapling tree, a very young tree that is probably stressed by something else, you know, you know, drought or whatever. And so, you know, in nature they tend not to cause too much of a problem, but in you know in home gardens they can be. And the the interesting thing with the the citrus gall wasp is that. It's a native insect. It has evolved with our native citrus. And once we uh, introduced cultivated citrus from other countries, it went, yeah, I think I prefer these. And so that's (laughs) why they they tend to, they just love it. So that's interesting. I didn't know that they were actually native to Australia. That's wild.
0: Because we do have the, what do you call the native lime? Uh, that we have yeah here? the
1: desert de- desert lime and so forth there's a few yeah yeah oh, so that's more one of them Okay. That, yeah 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 there's a couple, a couple, few different species of trees that produce these those little uh, little power packed <laughs> citrus things yeah. so yeah
0: and when i think about the damage that they can do i think about a branch being like a straw and then if you take a little bit of a grain of sand and you put it in the straw you're changing the amount of liquid that you can pull up and push down through that straw. So you're creating like a an obstruction within the branch. Would that be correct? For the
1: gall? No, yeah. it tends to all its um all those, you know, veins and arteries, if you like, are usually just under the under the skin of the tree, under the under the bark. Mm. And so it get, it still runs around through the gall. So oh, it's Oh okay, not a so it doesn't really yeah. cause
0: too much damage too much. Is it just an aesthetic thing, is it?
1: Yeah, that's right. So what happens oh, okay. is, you know, it just, they just basically, if, if you let it run, they just take over the tree. And eventually, mm. you know, if the galls get big enough and extend all the way along, you tend to not have too many leaves left. But, you know, minor mm. infestations, you can still have, you know, nice lemons or whatever it is that you're, you're growing. So um, they, yeah, it's not like, for example, a chewing insect that might defoliate a plant that causes much more damage, right? But you know, certainly in the end, they can they can be so so badly you know infested with the galls that there's more gall than actual stem. Mm.
0: Right. Well, that's very interesting. I'm learning so much today. So I guess with the gall wasps, look, we will talk a little bit more about IPM soon and some of the strategies. Like we'll go over that briefly. We did do another episode on it because I don't want to dwell too much on that. But sticky traps, they're not selective, are they?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so any any small insect will certainly stick to it if they're attracted to it. And a lot of insects mm. appear to be attracted to that the colour yellow. Mm. And so, you know, I, I wonder whether that's because of, you know, the, that's the colour of a lot of flowers, for example. They might be thinking it's a nice place yeah. to get a feed of nectar and so they stick to it and so they're very indiscriminate and it's similar to those things called mozzie zappers that attracts mm. a whole lot of insects in, as well as mosquitoes and often mm. the mosquitoes are actually a minority of the insects that are actually killed by those things.
0: Yes. Well, it's not good especially seeing as we are in quite a bit of a situation globally with insect numbers. Dennis, we've organized speaking about another topic for another episode on a particular type of leaf miner, but there are lots of different types of leaf miners and I just wanted to touch on them briefly in this episode as well.
1: Sure. So, leaf miners are an insect, well it could be a it could be a sawfly, a bunch of moths that do it and also a range of flies, usually in the, the family agramizidae. And they how it works, generally speaking, is they the adult lays an egg inside the leaf. And the egg hatches into a larva of some sort, which then starts to feed inside the leaf, usually just under the you know the first layer or two. And mm. it sort of moves forward and it eventually you'll end up with this sort of sinuous trail that is you know quite visible on the surface of the leaf and as the larva gets bigger you know it, it molts and gets bigger the, the leaf mine gets wider and so it'll start off quite small and thin and then gets wider as the as the larva gets bigger and then eventually it will pupate Either in the leaf, or it will emerge from the leaf and drop to the ground. You know, depending on which leaf miner it is. And so, mm. ones that might be uh, obvious to people would be something like the uh, the citrus leaf miner, which is the larva of a kind of moth, which forms these sinuous, silvery coloured trails on leaves. And then there's a, a couple of flies that people might have seen the the cineraria leaf miner and the, the cabbage leaf miner, which causes sort of similar squiggly trails in leaves. And, you know, generally speaking, they're not too much of a problem. They can, the citrus leaf miner can get out of, out of hand a bit, but it's usually only on the, the new growth, the new season's growth, you know, nice soft leaves. It's a real problem, though, in commercial crops. Where, Mm -hmm. if you have a a leaf miner say on something like chrysanthemums on all the leaves, Mm -hmm. it makes those flowers unsellable. And the same for things like uh, leafy vegetables, like you know, kale or something like that. If you've got these squiggly lines all over it, and you know, they can't sell the crop, so they can be a a very serious pest, and, uh, and yes, we are uh, going to do another podcast on uh, on yeah. a recent arrival. <laughs> Fun times, not. <laughs> not, yeah. Not.
0: <laughs> so I can't wait to get to that one because I do have a lot of things I want to talk about there because the, it is fascinating to think about, um, you know, insects that are using plants rather than investing their own energy into building a cocoon of some kind.
1: Yes, yeah, it's a, it's a great way, you know. As far as evolution goes, uh, you know, something like yeah, a leaf miner is a is a, a great step forward, in that their their larvae protected, and so because larvae usually very soft and and very attractive to you know things like birds or, or ladybirds or whatever you know predatory beetles and things, and so if you can. Install them inside a plant, like a like in a leaf mine or in a gall. There you go; Mm. they're they're protected, and Mm. you know it's life's good.
0: It's free real estate, as they say.
1: Absolutely, and you know, I mean, other insects (laughs) do protect their protect their larvae in other ways, like you know, borers are are pretty obvious. You know, where they're like the soft larva is inside a tree, which makes it really hard to get to, (laughs) or say the Things that feed on tree roots underground, there's not many things down there that will will prey on them. So, you know, that's another good way to protect your young. And that's all they're trying to do. That's that, that's sort of the, the evolutionary imperative, really, is to try to protect your young as much as possible and, you know, keep your progeny going as much as possible. And hopefully, you know, install, uh, get, well you know the precursor for the next uh, generation
0: yeah that's it now we've spoken about sucking chewing galls leaf mining insects are there any other insect major insect pests that we've sort of neglected so far
1: well probably the one i just touched on which were the the borers they right. they can yes. they can cause they can they can cause a lot of damage depending on where 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 and what <laughs> Um, so mm. they tend to be quite serious pests. Into, like, for example, with some of the the longicorn beetle larvae, which get into gum trees, that can be a real problem in plantation timber, where you really don't want tunnels inside the wood that you're trying to mill and sell. Mm-hmm. Um, so, whereas out <laughs> in the out in a, a national park, it's not so much of a problem. Sure. The plant, the tree might eventually fall over, but generally speaking, a lot of these wood boring uh, beetles tend to be attracted to trees that are in decline anyway. And so the because if the tree is really healthy and not stressed by something else, the tree has a defence mechanism where they. So the egg is laid under the bark, the grub hatches out, and they've got very powerful chewing mouthparts, and they start to chew mm. into, the, into the wood of the tree. The tree has this sort of specialised sap, which it tries to flush that larva out with. And so that's why the, the adults are more attracted to a tree in decline, because that defence mm-hmm. mechanism is less likely to be so effective. That's an excellent point, Dennis. That brings
0: me to the question of what other methods of defence do plants have in nature?
1: Many and varied. So, one of the interesting things that plants do is to use their chemistry to call for help. So they put yeah. put out this, uh, you know, bit bit like you know Batman with the the bat signal thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so as a as a, a plant feeder of some sort is feeding on the plant, it gives off certain chemicals which other insects can detect and so they come in and they either directly feed on what is feeding on the plant or they lay their eggs uh, in amongst it and so an example of that might be aphids feeding on a plant and then the plant giving off a chemical which is detected by a hoverfly you know, lovely little flies, sort of bee-like, mm. wasp-like flies that comes in and lays an egg right in amongst the aphids. And so when that egg hatches into a, a fly larva, they, they've got something to feed on. And so that happens a lot. So that, you know, plants do defend themselves that way. They also defend themselves, you know, with various spikes and hairs and all sorts of stuff to try to mm. to stop insects feeding on them. And kind of it starts this whole, uh, I guess you'd call it an arms race, where mm-hmm. then the then the plants have to, uh, sorry, the the plants develop something, and then the insects have to develop something to mm-hmm. combat that. And a an, a an example of that might be, say, the milky sap of some plants that you might be familiar with. You know, things like dandelions do it. They have this sort of milky sap which is poisonous to a lot of insects, but some insects. Um, have worked out a way to combat that, and so, and then you can take that a step further, where the insect then uses the plant poison to make itself poisonous to other insects. <laughs> so the classic example of that is I know that's a bit of a <laughs> that's a bit of a, a chain reaction, isn't it? But that's what goes on in nature all the time, and so. The example of that, which everyone would know, would be the monarch butterfly. In you know North America, has those massive migrations, and then they overwinter in those forests in Mexico. In the in the zillions, they feed on a plant called milkweed, and I can't remember that it's it's scientific name off the top of my head. Sorry about that, but milkweed, which tells you it has milky sap, and so the larvae of the of the monarch, so the caterpillar, feeds on the plant. It's immune to that poison. It doesn't hurt it at all. And then it takes it on board. And so when the caterpillar pupates, it's still retaining that plant poison. And then the adults also have it. So it makes them distasteful to birds. And so they've sort of co-opted this... Poison, which should actually kill insects, but it doesn't kill them, and it use they use it to make themselves distasteful. So it's astounding. So you know, nature is amazing, like that, where you can have these multifaceted stories appearing. It's just like a very, you know, we have these TV shows where we have you know these
0: struggles for power. Well, this is the same thing. It's just on a very, very slow scale most
1: of the time. Yes, that's right. Yep, tiny little little worlds
0: yes until we introduce something where it doesn't belong and then changes can happen rapidly and that's where i see real problems happening
1: yes that's right the so when a when a new insect arrives somewhere often there aren't things to to combat it and they can go a bit crazy and and cause uh, all sorts of problems so it is yeah it's a real issue but you know pests um, pest insects can be introduced from elsewhere but of course they can also be native and then take a liking for our cultivated plants like the the gall wasp was you know the example that we were looking at earlier so things can change it's a it's a never-ending feast out there Mm, that's so true dennis i don't want to I've We sort of talked about IPM and
0: this is really the crucial subject for this episode so I will urge our listeners to go and listen to episode 33 of this podcast intro to integrated pest management because it's so important but can we just touch on a couple of IPM methods such as companion planting for pest control?
1: Sure that's yeah companion planting is where you know putting a couple of different sorts of plants together helps to Either drive away the insect, or you could also use it as a type of uh, trap cropping where uh, you are basically they're sacrificial plants, in other words, that's another way of doing it. It can be a lot of companion planting methods aren't supported by science. so you've got to be a little bit careful of that and sometimes they're sort of misrepresented. But one that has been is that there there is some benefit in planting. Certain types of marigolds, if you have nematode problems, there has been some work done on that, um, but a lot a lot of them haven't been tested in in the lab and so forth but if you you think it's working for you and you don't have a a pest problem, you know why not it's not doing any harm, so yeah, you just got to be a bit careful. it may not be a catch all thing it may not work all the time everywhere and but things like trap crops do or sacrificial crops definitely do, where you find the thing, the plant that is most attractive to that particular pest that you're trying to manage, whatever it is, Uh, let's say cabbage white butterfly that we were talking about before. And there is a lot of evidence that some of the Asian greens, like your Chinese cabbage type things, are more attractive to the cabbage white butterfly uh, than other uh, brassica, brassica crops like you know, cabbages, broccoli and cauliflower and so forth. So, you know, that's something that's worth trying. And in my own uh, vegetable garden, um, I tried at one time where I I planted out some cabbages. You know, I usually grow some green cabbages and some red cabbages and I had some some left over and I thought, well, why don't I plant them up in the other corner of the garden, the opposing corner, and... Mm -hmm. And see what happens because I'm pretty sure when the butterflies fly in, the cabbage white butterflies fly in. They come in from that direction, and so I planted the the cabbages, and the poor things. Oh gosh, they they were riddled with these caterpillars. Whereas down the other corner in the garden, where everything else was planted, they were pretty fine. They some of them had some damage, but they mostly didn't. So if you can plant enough of a of a sacrificial crop, that should work. So you've just got to be a bit careful about what works in one person's backyard may not work somewhere else because of where the pests come from. Like in an urban setting, usually with something like a cabbage white butterfly, you might have, you know, a half a dozen butterflies flying around your backyard. When they come into my place, they're in their hundreds. Because not very far from here, they grow canola, and you know which is hundreds of acres of a you know canola is basically a, a type of uh, cabbage. It's a brassica, and they also grow these field brassicas, which are for sheep. And so they don't control pests at all in those because you know there's no point. It's not going to bother bother the sheep if there's a few caterpillars. And so <laughs> I've got those crops that are you know, within uh, a few kilometres of me. So I tend to get them coming in in clouds. (laughs) So I have to take all sorts of precautions. Yeah. With the
0: canola crop, I'm guessing that they probably don't have a sacrificial crop around. So that canola crop is the only food source for the caterpillars. So it's not like they can prefer one or the other, you know, they're going straight for that one plant. Whereas let's imagine if we want to tell, let's say we have a party, and we have people who really like almonds, but they will yep. also eat peanuts. But the people who love almonds, we want them all in one spot so that we can come and sort of say, hey, we don't like people who like almonds. We want you to get out of the room. So if we can get them all in <laughs> one spot together, you know, it's kind of easier to just sort of, yeah, sort of yep. separate. Yeah, like- I, I, don't like, I don't like talking about separating people, but, <laughs> but the like, analogy is yeah, there. No.
1: You know, we, we've it got works, these moths that yeah. really love cabbages. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, it works for me. Perhaps, perhaps the you could you make it a bit more more benign on the uh, on the party goers, and you could have the almonds in in a separate room where they're still having right. a nice time, but you know the mixed <laughs> nuts and the other things, you know, the Brazil right. nuts or whatever, are yes. in a different room, <laughs> yeah. and everyone's still having a nice time, but they're kind of separated. Ah. Yeah, so that's kind of what you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. So you're so, not trying to get rid the of them; thing- you're just trying to yeah. manage them. That's correct yeah and of course at some point if you're if you do the uh, trap cropping thing you have to at some point get rid of those plants because once the because these things have several generations per year so mm. so they will eventually you know you'll have lots of caterpillars chewing away and eventually they will pupate what you don't want is a whole lot of You know, butterflies, if we stick with our cabbage white butterfly example, we don't want a whole lot of white butterflies emerging in your own backyard. So at some point, you've got to do something about that, which can simply be, you know, chopping off all those leaves and, you know, burying them or whatever, and then Mm. leaving the roots in the ground and letting them shoot again, which will then Mm. give the next lot of butterflies something to lay eggs on. And sometimes you've got to do several things at once. and something else that I do in my garden, if I haven't grown one of these trap crops, I or you know or sac- sacrificial crops, whatever you want to call it, and I've got a whole lot of you know cabbages and cauliflowers in a particular bed, I'll throw a net over it. And so mm-hmm. that is the simplest thing you can do in a garden mm-hmm. is to put a net over something and depending on what it is, You may need the very fine uh, mesh, but if you use that uh, sort of five mil mesh, that is enough to stop those butterflies coming through. So they may be fluttering around your garden, you know, like in my place in considerable numbers, but they'll eventually move off because there's nowhere for them to lay their eggs. And the only trick to using a net is to make sure that it's up off your plants. You don't drape. The net on the plants because they'll try to lay their eggs mm. through the net, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: and then once they're on that leaf inside the net, then it's game over because they can't get out of the net.
1: Well, that, yeah, they'll just keep uh, keep breeding <laughs> breeding in there. You know, you've got yourself a a, a butterfly zoo.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, butterfly zoo. Yes. Yeah, exactly. An
1: atrium. <laughs> Indeed. So, chemical pesticides. What do you reckon? Some of them. Useful. Most of them aren't because what tends to happen is that a lot of the, you know, sticking with home gardens, I guess, the, a lot of them have very broad spectrum in that they are designed to kill a whole lot of different types of insects. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that by just, you know, reading the label, you know, it'll say something like, you know, kills ants, caterpillars, weevils, you know, whitefly or something like that. So that's a fairly you know broad range of broad range of insects you've got some some sap suckers and you've got some leaf chewers there so that gives you an indication that it's a broad spectrum insecticide so they are particularly problematic because not only do they kill the insect that you're trying to control they also kill the beneficial insects which are helping you control the insect that you are yeah. trying to control so they are never a good idea. And so the more targeted you can be, the better, and the softer you can be, the better. And what I mean by softer, some of the products that are are available, like horticultural oils or okay. the horticultural soap spray. So yes, if you spray a tiny little parasitic wasp, it will kill it, but it's not they're not residual mm-hmm. the, the chemical doesn't yeah. hang around and you have yes. to actually hit the insect for it to work and so the the oil sprays and the soap sprays are similar in that in that regard so you can avoid spraying beneficial insects by doing something like well spray you know first thing in the morning before it gets too warm like if you can see The aphids on your plant, you know, just go out early morning, spray them, that'll kill them. But there probably aren't any little parasitic wasps flying around. And, you you know, it should be pretty safe. So you can do things like that. And then there are the, so, you know, even though they're relatively broad, they are quite soft. And so then there's another group of uh, insecticides that are really specific to particular types of insects. And the the classic example of that is a, a thing called dipel which is a which only affects caterpillars it's based on a bacteria bacillus thuringiensis which only affects caterpillars so if we just track back a second and think about our broad spectrum heavier insecticides another problem with that type of insecticide is that you can get secondary poisoning where if you mm-hmm. kill a whole lot of caterpillars and then a bird feeds on those caterpillars, it can affect them. Mm-hmm. So with Dipel, this bacillus-based thing, it's, it's soft in that it doesn't kill beneficial insects that are flying around. It's very narrow-focused, so it's not broad, broad spectrum, and it doesn't do that secondary poisoning th- thing, so it's very safe to use. So it won't affect you, it won't affect the birds, won't affect your pets and if applied correctly it will work. It's just a little bit trickier, you know, you don't sort of want to spray it in the middle of the day when it's too hot and you don't want to spray if there's rain coming because it might wash off and then you'll have to spray again and it takes a little while to work because being a stomach poison of caterpillars, so you sort of spray it on the plant and, you know, and the caterpillars, you direct it sort of into where they are and where they are feeding. But how it works is it doesn't kill the caterpillar when it touches it, it only kills the caterpillar when it eats it. So it eats a little bit of leaf with that formulation on it, and then it, you know, takes it into its stomach, and then eventually it has an effect on it. So I think they, it takes about something like a day before they stop feeding, then another day to kill it. So you've got to be a little bit patient that it might not work straight away, but unfortunately that's the only one that we've got that we can use in home gardens at the moment. Maybe more will come on on the market later on. but those sort of you know softer you know narrowly focused insecticides are the things that we should be you know trying to use and you know, lobbying uh, governments to spend lots of money on developing because they if you need to spray something yeah. that's what you should you should use
0: absolutely that chemical that you're talking about there does the brand name begin with m or am i thinking of a different one uh,
1: no yeah no 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 that's it's a different dipel because you know that's a, a synthetic pyrethroid i think but you yeah, know that's bre- That's oh, broad is that spectrum. Pyrethrin. that's okay yeah, so that's pyrethroid yeah it's a pyrethroid okay yeah 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 so it's it's synthetic. So synthetic okay. broad spectrum, yeah, no not definitely not. <laughs> so okay. No it's right. it's sold it's sold it's either sold as diapel or it's sold as you know natural caterpillar killer or something like that. You know there's a few few yeah. products that have it. So yeah, just check it out on your at your nursery or garden center or whatever you call them these days. I'm sure they'll have it good stuff.
0: Now that does bring me to another question as well. What do you think about the differentiation between natural pesticides and synthetic pesticides? Like is
1: there a real difference there? Well, uh, you would have to say that, you know, I guess dipel could be thought of as a as a natural insecticide because it occurs naturally, but it's kind of mm. it's synthesized in a way because it's all concentrated and so forth. And the other thing to think about is that, you know, just because it's natural doesn't make it safe. So if you think yes. about early early poisons are plant-based. So they're made from plants or parts of plants. Yeah. And there's one that is still used in home gardens, now, what, uh, usually co- some sort of dust, vegetable dust or something like that. And it's based on, a uh, the chemical name is rotanone, which is, I think, a, oh I should know this, shouldn't I? <laughs> I think it's the root of a plant <laughs> that's dried and crushed up. Now, you know, that sounds great. You know, it'll kill caterpillars and stuff. In other countries, they use it to kill fish. They throw it in, they crush these roots up, throw them into a stream and the fish rise to the surface and then they (laughs) get, that's how they catch fish. You know, so that gives you an indication that just Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it comes from a plant doesn't make it particularly safe to use in terms of, you know, they're usually pretty broad. In their in their target range, it'll kill a whole lot of things. So once again, it may kill the beneficial insects which are helping you out, as well as the yeah the pest that you're you know dealing with. So yeah, just got to be a bit careful.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the same deal with like um, pyrethrum and uh, neem too. You broke up a little yeah, bit there, right. so I didn't hear the name of the plant. What was the plant root plant? You broke up. I didn't hear that.
1: Oh yeah, the name of it. Uh, the name of the chemical in is rotenone.
0: What's the plant? Do you know the plant name? Oh, or did you say you don't know it because you can't remember?
1: Yeah, I can't remember. It's a it's a root of something. Yeah.
0: So we've also got something called pesticide resistance. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, that's a very important story. That one, and it's often part of the story with uh, agricultural pests and even new arrivals. You know, ones that have only arrived recently. One of the stories that people might remember is I think it was back in the 1970s or early 1980s on the Ord River scheme up the you know the top of Western Australia around Kununurra, there was a cotton industry. And so they planted their cotton. And the first year was a bumper crop and they thought this is fabulous. You know, it's the right climate, nice and hot. We've got uh, endless water with this new irrigation scheme. This will be fantastic. The next year it wasn't so good because by then the, the moths had found the cotton and they were starting to lay eggs and the caterpillar numbers were building up so the, the farmers started spraying u- using what was uh, available at the time. And after a year or so, they found that they were spraying more and more regularly rather than, say, doing maybe one or two sprays per season. They were doing multiple sprays. And then after a, a few more years... They were doing things like spraying twice a week. And so, mm. what happens is: so, you've got a whole bunch of caterpillars, you spray them. Most of the time, some of them will survive. It won't kill them all because they are naturally resistant to it. But you're talking about a, a mi- minor percentage, you know, 0.1% or something of the population will be just naturally resistant to it. Now, the next generation, as they breed up, you know, and they mix with a population that hasn't been sprayed, you know, the proportion of resistant moths or resistant caterpillars starts to rise. And if you keep spraying, it'll keep rising and keep rising and keep rising until most of the caterpillars are resistant to most of the chemicals that you're throwing at it. And so it is a real problem. And so the Ord River cotton, that whole story between beginning of the cotton growing and the end of the cotton growing was a period of about 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's how quickly that can happen. Now, (laughs) even more tragically, this caterpillar, which has various common names like budworm and cotton bowlworm and corn earworm, which is known to science as Helicoverpa armigera, it migrates it can fly colossal distances it sort of gets caught up in the jet stream and can fly hundreds if not thousands of kilometers and so within a few years those that resistant population managed to make it to one of the major growing areas in southern queensland and so you know they sort of arrived if you know some of them were resistant and then once again the resistance Resistant population started to take over because the non resistant ones are being killed off. The resistant ones aren't Mm -hmm. killed off, and slowly the proportion builds up again and again and again. And so that resistant population has now got all the way around Australia, including into Tasmania. And so it is unfortunately resistant to most of the chemicals uh, that are registered against it. And so that's why insecticides such as the dipole that I was talking about, the, the caterpillar stomach poison is a much better way to go, as is uh, using integrated pest management techniques, and especially the promotion of beneficial insects. So it's about having more than one tool in your tool belt. That's right. Yeah. If you' so IPM, integrated pest management, it uses insecticides, employs insecticides as a last resort. Using the softest op- options available and the most targeted options available, rather than back in the day where people put on a spray by the calendar. You know, oh look, it's the eighth <laughs> yes. of it's the eighth of September. I spray today. <laughs> you know, without even looking to see what's out there in terms of you know pests or you know. And one of the things with IPM is that you you go and in, walk into a crop, you assess the pests and the beneficials you know so not just one so you know what what's the population of pests like what is the population of the beneficials like are the beneficials starting to outnumber the the pests how much damage is the pest going to cause is it actually economically viable to try to control them with insecticides so all those things sort of start rolling into into the equation and that, that's Those are the sort of determinations that you have to make.
0: Absolutely, because we have a responsibility as human beings. You know, we like to think of ourselves as probably the most intelligent animals on the earth. I mean, I know that's up for debate, but, you know, I yeah. think that because of the capabilities that we have as a human being, yeah. that comes with a huge responsibility to shepherd this yep. planet that we live on. So that's, you know, we cannot be using broad-scale pesticides On a calendar because we're destroying the ecosystem.
1: Yes, absolutely. There's lots of talk now about, you know, regenerative farming and so forth, regenerative agriculture, you know, and integrated pest management and all those things. And it's sort of trying to turn things around so that those sort of ideas become the norm rather than the exception. And to get Mm -hmm. people to think more about what's on their properties, you know, whether they're a very large farm or a small holding or a hobby farm or a backyard and work out you know what what is out there and it's i always I'm always amazed when I talk to farmers about you know what's on their place. you know when I walk in, they expect me to you know tell them okay, you need to do this, this, and this to to combat that particular pest, whatever it is, but by the end of it, they're telling me things. Because they know so much, once you ask the right questions, they know where the pests come from, like the direction and out of what. You know, like they, oh, yes, you know, uh, Fred blogs next door, doesn't control that that patch of weeds (laughs) over there. And I know that such and such comes out of there and that starts down at that end of the paddock and ends up up here. And you can start rolling all that local knowledge into your assessments. And so once you do that, the, the farmers are delighted when you tell them, well, you know, you know more than I do about your place. <laughs> and if you, you know, the direction they're coming from, all you have to do if you want to spray is just spray that edge of the, of the paddock and leave the rest alone and you'll be fine. Right. And so once you can and often you have to trial these things, start small, do it with one paddock and then move on to the rest just to show them how it works. But it's absolutely amazing. And after a few years, they they have had a major reduction in the amount that they spend on on insecticides.
0: Absolutely. And I'm seeing this change as well as somebody who's looking from the outside at the agricultural industry. You know, I think it's fantastic to see in this country people taking it seriously. But I yeah. think where we're lacking is the landscaping industry, especially the maintenance industry. You know, the solution so often, even with people who are educated in this stuff, is just to reach for the chemicals at the first yeah. sign of any kind of an insect. And I was telling you earlier, I worked under somebody who saw a lady beetle and they wanted to spray just because they saw a lady beetle. And it just breaks my heart because lady beetles are a good sign, you know, yeah, that's we need right. to be preserving them. So yeah, yep. I, I want the landscaping industry to take this a lot more seriously.
1: Yeah, look, I often, yeah, yep. Look, it's the way, sometimes it's the way they're trained and so forth. And they're, they're also possibly following, you know, the guidelines of what's been set by the landowner. Some yep. people don't like, you know, anything affecting their plants. So they like to have The perfect lawn, Mm. you know, which can look amazing when you see some of those brilliant emerald green lawns from one side to the other of the garden, and you think, "Wow, you know, that does look pretty amazing." And they want all their plants to be, you know, totally untouched by by insects. So, in a way, the landscapers are between a rock and a hard place. But I I do take your point that some of them do use a whole lot of, of chemicals, and they are often. Licensed to use Mm. chemicals that the home gardener themselves aren't allowed to purchase, so it can be a bit a bit tricky. But yeah, look, you know, I I don't want to tell people how how to do their job, but part of it is no, you know, if they could if they could educate the landowner to be a a little more tolerant of a little bit of damage, the garden would be Mm. a heck of a lot healthier. And it's something that I always talk about when I do a lot of my public speaking is that, you know, one word that you need to think about is that word tolerance. Because we've yes. been we've sort of been hoodwinked into it, you know, like for decades and decades, we've been brainwashed to expect to have, you know, the perfect apple when we buy it at the shop, you know, wherever you buy it, you know, greengers or supermarket or local market or whatever you know, and to never see an insect on on the produce. And the same thing goes with the the cut flower industry. You are not allowed to have, you know, the slightest blemish on a rose bloom. Whereas, you know, often if, you know, any rose grower will tell you, you know, that you will have the odd one, you know, there'll be a, a chew mark here, there'll be a little bit of a, you know, botrytis sort of disease on, on one over here, you know. And it kind of it's just normal that there are that there is some damage and and or, you know, disease symptoms. So we've been taught to expect that. Now, when I was a kid, which is a long time ago, it was not unusual to find insects in, in produce that you bought from the greengrocer, particularly things like if you were shelling peas, to find a, you know, one little pea in the pod plus a fat caterpillar. You know, and of course, as a kid, you love that. You go, oh, look, you know, there's a caterpillar. Oh, it's bright green. And, you know, okay, throw it out and feed the birds, you know. And so it was all part of life. Whereas now, you know, the I know what happens when the supermarket buyers go to the wholesalers. They look at bins and if they see any insect, they'll reject the entire bin. And so... And that could be, I've, some in some circumstances, uh, and there is an education program to try to combat this, it also applies to, as you were saying, ladybirds. They see ladybirds crawling around in it and the growers going, that's a good thing. That means that, you know, they're not, that produce isn't full of chemicals, but the buyers trying to reject it going, oh yeah, but it's a live insect. Yeah, but you know the the Beatles will leave eventually, you know, because they realise, hang on, this isn't good. <laughs> we're, we're in a we're in a <laughs> box full of apples or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> and so they'll move on, they'll fly off. But it is a real worry. So that's why in the supermarket itself, when you go to buy stuff, that you'll rarely see a living thing in in amongst the uh, the vegetables and so forth. Because it all happens at the wholesale level.
0: Yeah. Recent guest that I interviewed, it's actually coming out this weekend our time. But when the mm-hmm. listeners listen to this episode, it will have already been released. So it's going to be episode 59. It'll be Crimes Against Horticulture. And the guest was Billy Goodnick. And we were speaking about like the mindset of gardeners. And he mentions the janitorial mindset of a gardener. Yeah. You know, we're looking for straight lines, we want it to be neat and tidy. It's yeah. not about understanding the plant or loving the plant on its own terms. It's about trying to force it into a a man-made conception about what we wish it was rather than what it actually is.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's something that's a European gardening way of doing it, which is what we're trying to emulate in a completely different climate. And so we're we're still, you know, doing that and it's and it's not good and we should be trying to have you know much more biodiverse gardens, and if you if you think about you know some of the work that uh, A B Bishop has has been doing, you know with habitat gardening, and I I remember from a talk of hers that I saw where she said that nature abhors a vacuum, and so what she meant by that was that that means two things: you don't want to you know somewhere where there's only one or two species of something but also you know vacuuming as in you know cleaning your house you don't want it cleaned up too much where you might have that back garden that is you know the lawn from fence to fence you know with two or three plants dotted along it you know that's not going to be particularly biodiverse and so if you do get something that flies in and decides to lay eggs in your lawn you're in trouble because there aren't other insects There to help combat it. And that's how, you know, well, for example, in horticulture, like monoculture promotes pests. If it was more mixed up, it wouldn't be such a problem. You know, back in the day, you know, a couple of centuries ago, people had small patches of things, of varying things, not thousands of acres of the same thing. And so, If you're a moth flying in, you'll go, whoopee-doo, this is fantastic. I can lay my eggs everywhere and this is brilliant. But if it's a bit harder to get to, you know, it's going to be a different story. And so now there's all this talk about on some of those very large farms is returning patches of it to nature. So, you know, it sort of started, oh gosh, I guess back in the 1960s and 70s were things like shelter belts, which was all about preserving the soil from wind, which were just rows of trees, but now they're much more mixed plantings of having undergrowth as well. And hopefully of a range of species that, you know, flower at different times of the year, which can then attract in, you know, some of the beneficial insects, particularly wasps, which need a feed of nectar before they go and do their work. And so this is all part of the, all these things are part of the conversation now of trying to return some of the land to nature. And there's been lots and lots of studies done on it in terms of how much land a grower needs to give up. And it's, and it's actually quite a lot. It's up to 20% or so before it has an, has an effect on, um, on yield and so forth. And you think, now, how can that be? You've got less, you got less land under crop. Well, the crop that you've got is better. You know, and it's just better for the uh, for the soil and, you know, just the land itself to have, you know, more sort of, you know, things like creeks that are running and bits of wetland and bits of forest and bits of, sh- and, you know, just shrubs, you know, scrubby stuff is, is good enough. And it doesn't have to be grown in neat rows and plantations, you know, just chuck it out there. It's all good
0: and I urge our listeners to go and check out episode 57 with Matt and Elizabeth from Growing Real Food for Nutrition because they're talking about how biodiversity actually increases nutritional density of food
1: that's right yep absolutely yeah the the uh, the jury is definitely in on that one the the work's been done so it's all this stuff is supported by science and some of the, the studies go back decades and they'd mention a few studies
0: I wanted to touch on as well, you mentioned nature abhors a vacuum. Now, if we think about your yard, your yard wants to be one of two things, the way I think about it. It either wants to be a grassy plain or it wants to be basically a jungle. So when you have a bare patch of lawn, nature is going to fight that. So it's going to bring in what are called colonizing plants. So we think of them as being weeds. And eventually you're going to end up with a jungle if you just leave it and do nothing to it. So, you know... Horticulture is all about understanding the laws of nature, I guess, the way I think about it. So if you plant something there and you establish that land and you sort of make your own jungle, then nature's gonna fight you a little bit less.
1: Yeah, that's right. So if you've got biodiversity, you're ahead of the game, really, and things things will come and go, like even in a a really mixed planting, you know, you will get the odd plant that dies. It just it happens, Uh you know? And so if that that occurs you can think well okay that particular plant maybe it just doesn't like it there so in that spot where yeah. that dead plant is I'll try something else and it's a matter of being out there and seeing what's going on and you know you can do the same thing you know in a veggie garden it doesn't have to be all neat rows and bare soil you know it can be things things can be mixed up you can you can plant Absolutely. you can have flowers in amongst your vegetables Yes. And that's a good thing because if you've got nectar bearing flowers, it will bring in particularly the parasitic wasps, which need a feed of nectar, and they will help you combat certain pests. And I've got a, a great little story of my own veggie patch where I had some it was kale and a couple of other sort of brassicas and I was keeping an eye on this patch. And it was totally unprotected by what I thought was unprotected. Um, I had no net over it and I hadn't planted you know, my trap crop down in the other corner. I was leaving it wide open for any <laughs> pest, whatever it is, come in and decimate it. Because at the time I was writing my book, Garden Pest Diseases and Good Bugs, I'll just plug my own book. Because I, need, I needed the photographs. I needed photographs of what does it look like? <laughs> When these things come in and chew the hell out of your plants, so, and most of that, you know, it worked. They they came in, they did their damage, and then eventually the beneficial insects caught up with them, you know, and started to control them. But I had these plants, uh, now I think it was now th- uh, it might have been, might have been kale or something like that that had gone to flower, and so you end up with all these flowering plants, and they are often a magnet for aphids. And so eventually these plants were covered in cabbage aphids. And I thought, this is fantastic. I'm going to get some really great photos. So I started photographing them and I could see these tiny little wasps working in amongst them. (laughs) And I'm going, oh, hell, (laughs) look, (laughs) too late, too (laughs) late, too (laughs) late. They're working away. And I thought, well, I better watch this and and try and take some photos of the aphids with the wasps and da-da-da. And I watched them. They'd come in. And they'd lay a few eggs inside the aphids and then fly off to about two meters away where I had this flowering plant, a native plant called thryptamine, which has Mm. tiny little flowers, thousands and thousands of flowers on each bush that have this neat little well of nectar right in the middle. So these little wasps would fly over to the flowers, fuel up, and then fly back again (laughs) and start laying more eggs. Mm. And this just went on. Of course, they're... They were way too small to to try and uh, video it, but uh, it was it was just stunning. And I thought, look at this. I, I mean, you know it works, but just to actually yeah. watch it happening was quite amazing. And within a short period of time, you know, like a few days, I could see that nearly all of the aphids, like we're talking, each plant had hundreds of thousands of aphids on it. They are yeah. coated in them they were all parasitized and you can tell because the they kind of swell up a little bit and then they start to have this sort of metallic sheen to them this is the aphids they start mm. to change and so that's nature telling you is those aphids are no longer feeding and inside there's a little wasp grub developing <laughs> you know so there's all all it's these brutal. neat little indicators <laughs> Gee, so brutal, isn't it? Nature. <laughs> yep, it can be. Yeah, think, <laughs> think aliens. Yeah. That's sort of that's sort of what goes on. But uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know. But it's a you know. it's a good thing, and these things are. This has been going on for millions of years.
2: Hmm.
0: Absolutely. So we've got beneficial activity happening on two levels there from these um, wasps. So we've got predatory action, and we've also got pollination action.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. So often you get. Uh, two things happening and another example is the the hoverflies that I was talking about earlier so they are they're larvae predators of aphids and the the little flies themselves are terrific pollinators when you look at them closely they've got this sort of this fuzz of fine hairs over their body so you know they go they go for a feed of nectar they get covered in pollen and so forth so they're doubly uh, useful to have in the garden
0: and you've got some companion planting going on there too. With the I can't remember the species name of that flowering plant you had, the native one. But right next to your pests,
1: yeah, the thryptamine. Yeah, it's one of my one of my go to plants because they they grow naturally in this area anyway. I'm in a particularly sandy area, so I know these those will survive quite well. So I've got three different species of those thryptamines growing in the, in my veggie garden so that they because they flower at a slightly different time so I can have sort of continuous flowering you know between those three mm-hmm. types of them for several months so it's a, it's a very good thing mm-hmm. to
0: have yeah totally very groovy and it's a good case study for what we've been talking about here today yeah so Dennis, is there anything that you reckon most people just don't think about when it comes to insect or insect-like
1: pests? Yeah, so that's my – you can probably hear my brain ticking over there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can we've covered so much ground already and it's like now I'm going to ask you this huge open-ended question.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe I should talk about uh, – what about if I mention the question about the decline of insects and so forth and yes. why it's important? Yeah. It's a, it's a story that's been around for a little while and some of it was sort of anecdotal evidence, which we can probably all add to by saying, yeah, there's less, mm-hmm. I see less butterflies than I used to see 10 years ago and so forth. But there were very few studies. There were a few about 10 years or so ago, which were, well, they weren't really well received by the rest of the scientific community because they tended to be quite narrow focused. But there have been some much broader studies recently where they've looked at, you know, hundreds and hundreds of surveys in various parts of the world, perhaps on general insects or, or specific insects, and they're starting to cobble it together. So whether it's you know anecdotal evidence or some of these studies, it's all heading in the same direction. You know, there is insect decline, you know, amongst at least some insects in some parts of the world. And so this is important because, you know, we've been talking about um, insects as pests or, uh, or as beneficial insects, you know, in helping combat those pests. But out there in nature, insects play a vital role. If you took out all of the insects out of the terrestrial ecosystems of the planet, they would all collapse because insects underpin all of those terrestrial ecosystems they are the food for all of the animals on top yes. of them on the on the food pyramid if you like they are also mm. the pollinators they are also uh-huh. the great recyclers they are also food for each other you know so the the parasites and the and so forth and the wasps uh, are the the predators you know so they play these vital roles in ecosystems. And so without them, uh, we would the planet would be in much worse trouble than what it's already in. So what we don't know is how many insects you can take out, how many species that you can remove from an ecosystem before it collapses. I mean, no one's ever looked at it. You'd have to destroy one to, <laughs> to make it happen. So we just don't know. You know, would it matter, you know, if... Uh, you know, North America lost more of its native species of bumblebees. We don't really know, you know, because, it, you know, it's only yeah. a couple, it happened in a couple of places. You know, what happened if it, it happened everywhere in North America? We just don't know. We assume something bad would happen. We just don't know what it is. You know, possibly Perfect. the loss of... I assume something catastrophic? Well, to start with, it would be the the loss of the plant's that rely on those bees for pollination, because mm. some bees are re- uh, sorry. Some bees and plants have very specific relationships. Yeah. Other plants, not so. They they they'll be pollinated by a range of insects. Some plants require a particular insect to be pollinated mm. by, and if you remove that insect, eventually those plants would disappear. You know, what if there were certain other animals that relied on that plant for food? They would also disappear. What if other animals ate those animals? They would also disappear maybe, you know, and so on. You get these knock-on effects. How long it would take, I've got no idea. You know, it's not worth even contemplating. So that's why... It's not an option. No. So in a, in a general sense with this d- decline, it's, it's vital to ecosystems. Those ecosystems support us you know, the oxygen we breathe, you know, partially comes from all the plants um, on the planet. You know, I know a lot of it comes from plankton as well, but, you know, the air is going to change that we breathe without all those plants, you know, if the things, uh, the ecosystems start collapsing. So it's a a terrible scenario that we shouldn't even contemplate. So they're important out there in nature. They're important in our backyards, so if you can help promote them by having a more diverse backyard or perhaps even doing things like habitat gardening, you know, those sort of gardens are more enjoyable because you've got more things there to to look at and more birds and lizards and so forth. It's just nicer, so it's, it's certainly worth doing.
0: Absolutely agree, and put away the chemicals until the absolute last resort.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. That's r- rule number one. Don't, don't spray anything unless you have absolutely have to. Try other things first. Yep. And we're talking about heritage
0: plants or something like that. You know, a lot of the time we're just going to sacrifice a plant rather than use it. It's yes, just the best thing right. because we're, you know, he- healthy plants are resistant to pests and healthy ecosystems breed healthy plants. So when we keep our plants signed up to or, you know, locked into this, program of continuously spraying chemicals we make our plants weak and we actually increase the need for chemicals and the only winner is the chemical company the the winner is not the consumer of produce the winner is not the gardener the winner is not yeah. the person who gets to look at the
1: garden mm-hmm. mm, that's right yeah that's right and it, and it's yeah you could extend that by you know some of the fertilizers and so forth it all becomes all part of the <laughs> yes. same the same thing where you you just hook, hooked into it and if you're mm-hmm. If at the other end of that chain is a uh, you know is a supermarket buyer, you're locked in you know you've there's not not a lot you can do unless you completely renegotiate everything and that's why you know it's so difficult for growers to switch from conventional farming to organic farming there's so many hoops they've gotta to, to go through to jump through to actually get accreditation yes. and you know because mm-hmm. they've been using. You know, all the nasty stuff, that's got to take some years to clear out of the system. Yes. You know, exactly. it's really, really tricky. And I, I admire them, those people so much who who are prepared to wait that long to get that accreditation so they can become organic farmers. It's, It's quite amazing. And also, you know, there's a transition
0: period, not just to get the accreditation, but to build up that good, healthy soil biology, et cetera, et cetera. Because when we've been ruining the whole system for so long, it takes time to build back. It's just like our gut bacteria.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. One last question. So this is the one that, this is the question that people either love or they hate. And it's... Because it's just so open ended. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? So this is a place to plug or advocate a change.
1: Sure, I'd uh, yeah. The final thing I'd like to say is to never stop learning. You know, I've been doing what I do for for decades. You know, since the nineteen seventies, and I am constantly learning new things about insects. It might be a, something really, really specific, but it, it could be something you know relatively general that I've just missed or I've just never read the right thing. So there is always something to learn. So yeah. if you come across people who are saying, "Oh, you, all you need to do is this, this, and this," that is a really simplistic way to look at things. You know, <laughs> read as much as you can. Try and keep up with some of the new research. I would try to read material that is as scientifically based as possible and not just people's opinion because you know everyone can have an opinion about everything if, if they want but it's got to be backed up by at least some sort of trial and don't get mm. suckered in to following something that is not true and I'll just give you one little example for years i have been trying to kill off the plastic white butterfly And the theory goes that if you get a a plastic butterfly, uh, a white butterfly, and put it amongst your cabbages, it deters Mm -hmm. from cabbage white butterflies flying around your garden from laying eggs in the same patch because (laughs) cabbage white butterflies are territorial. Now, that's not true. So (laughs) they've studied (laughs) this they are not <laughs> territorial so a couple of scientific groups have looked at this they've looked at it separately so they had one group working on can we prove whether cabbage white butterfly are territorial or not or you know are they or aren't they so they did various trials and they proved they are not territorial so if a female butterfly is full of eggs is full of fertile eggs ready to go She will lay her eggs sitting right next to another female laying her eggs. How do I know this? Because I have seen it. (laughs) I have seen it. (laughs) So the other trial, I thought, okay, (laughs) let's try the plastic butterfly thing. So, you know, you get your plastic butterfly and you attach it to a stick somehow and you put it in amongst your crop. So they had a trial where they had, a a crop with nothing, a crop with just sticks, just in case it was the stick working, Mm -hmm. then a crop with Mm -hmm. sticks with the butterfly on it. And they had that in several locations set in several different soil types over a number of years. So this is a full-blown trial. Mm -hmm. And the answer, did it work or not? No, not at all. There was absolutely no difference. (laughs) <laughs> between one crop to another as to whether they were damaged or not by the by you know the butterflies laying eggs and the caterpillars hatching out and they watched it all the way through so they were they were counting eggs they were counting you know whether the eggs hatched or not and then then later on comparing the damage so it was the same no roughly change. the same number of eggs na- <laughs> laid in the first place uh, same number of eggs hatched out <laughs> Same amount of damage. It is not true. And that that is still being published in books and magazines and blogs. So be very careful about where you get your information. And, you know, if you do see something and you think, oh, is that really right? You know, just check, see if other people are saying the same thing and try to drill into where it came from, because you can be misled. You know, if you're expecting that to work, you'll be sadly disappointed. If you do have a number of butterflies fly in, so you just got to be a tad careful about some of the things that are promoted as possible deterrence or repellents. Uh, they may just not work, as in these plastic yeah. white butterflies. So um, check out, totally. you know, some of the uh, some blogs by uh, reputable people, you know, good magazines. And there's even, you know, YouTube channels of Port Journal as a ripper, <laughs> seeing as yeah. how I'm one of the writers, <laughs> yeah, because that's sort of more scientific based, the material that's written in there. And, uh, you know, I've got a blog of my own called One Minute Bugs. Now, look, it is a bit sporadic if I'm doing a whole lot of writing for, you know, commercial reasons, I'm tending not to do the the free stuff. <laughs> On on my blog, Mm -hmm. but I have occasional pieces there, and also little videos that I make from time to time. And if you're looking for a good book on garden pests, diseases, and good bugs, look for that one because it it replaces some of those other general garden insect books that were around for some time. But this is this is the new one, so it pretty much answers. And it's relevant in Australia. Yes, it's Australian based. It's Australian based as opposed to some other publications and it suits pretty much the whole country and it's sort of, I've tried to cover things for people who want to use pesticides. So there's a pesticide chart and then actually like in the pest sections, lots of tips on what to do if you don't want to use spray. So I've tried to make it for everybody. That's beautiful.
0: Now, Dennis, just before I let you go, I did have one question I wanted to ask you, seeing as we were talking about fact and fiction with regards to scientific studies and pesticides and stuff
1: like that. As an entomologist, what are your thoughts on glyphosate? Glyphosate, in terms of, it can be very useful if you're trying to control a whole lot of weeds. It's a little bit like some of the broad spectrum insecticides. It's a broad spectrum Mm -hmm. herbicide. So it's... uh, you'll end up with bare soil by creating bare soil you are then promoting other weeds which may be a mm-hmm. bit more resistant to glyphosate mm-hmm. glyphosate resistance yep. amongst weeds generally is a is a serious problem mm-hmm. is it a, is it as deadly to humans as you know certain american court cases lead us to believe i don't know is it something that i i th- throw around my garden nope <laughs> I do I control weeds in other ways, but I would you know it's if it's available out there and people want to use it, I can't stop them. There is a link between the decline of bees and glyphosate. There's been some very recent studies. It used to be thought that bees only got bamboozled when they picked up pollen from plants that had been treated with glyphosate. It sort of affected their their radar basically. But now a very recent study was showing that they are affected more directly by glyphosate, as in, you know, really? it can kill them if they're, if they're, if they're sprayed oh. with it. So, oh, if they're sprayed directly, uh, not if they land yeah, on a plant that's yeah. taking it in? Okay. That's correct, yes. On, no, uh, sprayed directly. So now that was in a study done on a particular bumblebee in America. So whether that translates to honeybees, I'm not certain but it would seem to be likely so you'd think so if you're putting those two if you put those two things together in terms of bees i would say something like glyphosate is probably is is disruptive and probably detrimental to them you know whether it's going to wipe them out or not i don't think so but it's certainly not good for them so i would be minimizing the use of herbicides in gardens as well as the use of insecticides
0: there we go okay so i i would like to cl- i find that very interesting about that because i haven't heard that so it's this is why i love this podcast because i love getting on people who have differing opinions and stuff like that so the way that i thought it worked was that we're removing habitat which is obviously detrimental so what what you're saying is that it's dangerous if we spray the bee directly but if it comes Onto a plant that's been sprayed recently, it's all dried, and the um, obviously the chemicals within the plant system, because it is a systemic chemical, that's not going to affect the bee. Just if it's sprayed directly,
1: uh, look, it might. Uh, it, it, there is some evidence that it affects the way uh, they get back to their their navigation. Basically, right. it affects that. Yeah, okay. In in honeybees, and that's been that's been studied. Well, thank you for that. That's good. So
0: if well now I have to update my belief system because in the podcast I've I've said before I like glyphosate I think it's great this is where we get yeah new people on because you're an entomologist and this is actually your area of expertise.
1: Yeah so look it's worth it, it's just worth reviewing the things that you use and maybe you know change your attitude a little bit you know you don't have to make wholesale changes overnight but I can mm. see I can see the use of Things like glyphosate, in yeah. certain circumstances, it's probably the only thing they can use. Yeah, but you've just got to be careful, you know, in in crops where they that are flowering, that you're not, you know, affecting the bees. So beekeepers have been talking to me about this stuff for years, but it's a matter of finding the proper studies. You know, yeah. anecdotal evidence only gets you so far. It needs to be proven in a yeah. trial, and there has been some work but there needs to be more work you can't rely just on one paper it needs to be repeated right. and then be trialed in in different countries in different circumstances and see if that's so but mm-hmm. the the trouble with broad broad spectrum herbicides is similar to the broad spectrum insecticide story in that you you create resistance you also promote the next lot of of weeds and or pests
2: mm mm-hmm. totally
0: yeah, well, thank you so much for an excellent episode, Dennis. This was quite a nice lengthy one, so I hope that our listeners are still listening because, yeah, chock full of info, and this is the only insect general episode I think Episode, I think we need to do. I think we've basically covered a lot of ground here, mate. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you.
1: <laughs> it, was a, it was a great chat.
0: If you'd like to read Dennis's books, you can find links in the show notes to purchase both of them, including the classic backyard insects and his latest offering, Garden Pests, Diseases and Good Bugs. If you like this sort of content and want to support us, please follow for future episodes, check out our back catalogue and share with your friends, family and colleagues.